Great. So, uh, transforming life. Last week, we talked about um, freedom. And we were saying that we sing a lot and talk a lot about Christ has set us free. Um, we looked at the scriptures and said that freedom is a big theme in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, one of the big sort of defining stories is God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into freedom in the promised land. And that theme of freedom runs throughout the scriptures. It's kind of a really big strand that ties together all the different things that God is doing. And Jesus comes and says, yeah, but you know what? The real, the real freedom wasn't just from Pharaoh. It isn't just from political systems. It's not just from social classes. The real battle is the battle against the powers that humankind has no ability to defeat, the powers of sin and death and pride and insignificance and rejection and all these things that are the source of all our woes and strife as humankind. And Jesus says, for this, you need a liberator even greater than Moses. And Jesus, upon the cross, says, this is the greatest act of freedom that's been accomplished for you. Christ's death upon the cross has disarmed the, the power of the enemy and all his strategies against us which is why we rightly sing about the freedom that God has given us and how we've been set free by Christ. And yet the scriptures, puzzlingly, perhaps, talk about be alert. Be on your guard for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Put on the full armor of God so that you might withstand the day of evil. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers uh, and forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Christ has set us free, and yet the early Christians understood that there was a battle on, not a battle to defeat the power of the enemy, because Christ has done that, but there's a battle to put it into action. There's a battle to walk in the victory that Christ has won for us. the early church understood that the power of the enemy decisively broken on the cross, that that victory that Christ has won now needs to be acted out in each individual life. And I think some Christians uh, tend to go onto one side or the other. Some Christians think all we need to do is look at what we're becoming. We have been set free. We've been made glorious. We are going to celebrate what we will one day become. When we see him, we will be perfect. So let's assume we're perfect now. Hallelujah. Christ has done it. And it's reinforced with a sense of this is faith. This is what it means to live in faith. It means to proclaim everything that I will be. Never mind what it's like now. We have to look to the future. We don't live by uh, sight, we live by faith in the Son of God. We look forward to what we are becoming, to what Christ will do when it's all over. Other Christians go on the other side and they say, well, actually, we don't, shouldn't expect too much in this life. Actually, the good news is that Jesus is coming back and he's going to rescue us from this pit of a life 
Um, and actually, what do you expect? Bad things happen. Wars are going to increase, going to go on getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, I'm just looking for a way out one day, bring on the rapture. That's kind of the other side. But I think orthodox, biblical Christianity kind of says, well, it's not that either of those are wrong, but they're not the whole truth. Yes, we must look to what we're becoming, have our eyes fixed on the future glory. But that doesn't mean we're silly about the very real battles that are going on around us and in our lives. The battle for faith, the battle for, for trust, the battle for security, the battle that many Christians have with rejection and really believing that I'm loved by God. I mean, if, if Christians could really grasp the height, width, depth, breadth of the love of God, uh, we'd be a different church, wouldn't we? We do grasp it in part, and yet... I find there's a battle inside me. I know that he loves me, but I know that if I really believed it, I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't be anxious. I wouldn't be afraid. I wouldn't be thinking about what's going to happen next week because I would be so secure in his love, so complete in the love of my Father. I would never doubt his good purpose and plan, and I would have total confidence and prayers full of faith based on his love because faith works by love. And I have grasped the love of Christ, but I find within me there's still a battle for more of it. There's, I'm not yet made complete, and I want to be. And I recognize there are things in me that resist a greater knowledge of the love of God. For me, one of them would be a deep sense of having to work hard for the approval that I think comes as a reward for working hard, that kind of love that's based on... Um, doing a good job, but God's having none of it, is he? God doesn't love us on the basis of that, and so long as I'm trying to get the love of God on that basis, then I'll forever struggle, wonder why I'm not really experiencing his love more deeply. But that deep fear that I might not be good enough to deserve God's love, you see, that's at war with the truth of God's love. I don't want to be, and I hate the idea, perhaps, but the reality is... There are resistances in my heart to receiving the full truth and revelation of Jesus Christ. And the good news, God says, is you can do something about that. I've given you tools and weapons with which you can begin to dismantle those things in your life that resist the, the, the fullness of God, the truth of, of God. And one of the ways the Bible uses to describe those kind of resistances that, if we're honest, we find within ourselves. Um, I'll give you another one. I, I believe that Jesus uh, is the healer, and I believe he wants to heal people today. I believe that. I sing about it. I'm absolutely up for it. But at the very moment when I come to pray, first F, I, I suddenly find a kind of gosh, will God do this? Will he? And I've prayed people before, will he really do it this time? And I, I'm sure someone else would be better at doing it. And I'm looking around, I'm sure someone else could, would be better at praying. You know, you know, any one of you actually, come. I think you'll do a better job than me. I'm full of faith when I'm on my own. Yeah, we can do this. But when it comes to it, I find that I'm not quite as full of faith as I like to be. And I can't hear God speak to me as clearly as I think I should be able to hear him. And I have to face the fact that there's, there's a battle going on, a battle for faith, a battle for security, 
a battle to feel accepted by Christ fully. There's a battle to know his love in all its fullness. There's a spiritual battle. And we shouldn't really be surprised because the Bible tells us that there's a battle. And we said last week, some of us are quite surprised when we find out that it's, guess what? It's true. Oh my gosh, it's true. The Bible's true. It says there's a spiritual battle going on in the heavenly realms. And there really is. Oh no. But it's there to remind us that that is the truth. Not to worry us or to frighten us, but to give us the lie of the land so that as Christians we can begin to uh, understand how to walk into it and deal with those things within us that resist God's perfect plan and purpose for us. And one of the descriptions that the Bible uses is it calls these things strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So we do have a war to wage. Christ has won the victory over all the powers of the enemy, but there is a war to be waged. But it's not a war as the world knows war. The weapons we fight with, oh, there are weapons, and you do have to fight. But the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. Um, I've got a little picture here of a stronghold. That's a stronghold. And it was designed to resist the oncoming army uh, that was coming against it. Um, it never really worked. I studied medieval history, and I, um, I don't often get the chance to show off my great learning, but I did actually do a whole paper in medieval castle building. Uh, and uh, the whole idea of a castle, they looked very grand, but in fact they were really rather stupid because all you had to do was surround the castle for long enough until all the food and drink ran out, and then they would all surrender wholesale, uh, and you got the whole lot, including the rather nice castle to live in. Uh, but there you go, it's, that's what it was designed to do. And they've been around since ancient times, a stronghold. It resists the army coming against it. Jesus is coming into your life and mine with his angel army behind him. And he's storming through every part of my heart. But from time to time, he comes against a stronghold. And we may not wish it, we may not want it to be there, but we can't seem to help it. It just sort of says, not so fast. So Jesus comes crashing into my life with his angel army, and every bit of ground he takes, he puts his standard of ownership upon it. But then he comes to a part of my heart that's not entirely sure I'm lovable, not entirely sure that I am accepted, not as well as other people might be. I'm not entirely sure that I've got the kind of faith that God intends me to have. I'm actually not really sure I've been entirely forgiven. I think I should have to at least live in the shadow of what I did a little bit. I mean, you can't expect things just to go back to the way they were, can you? Etc., etc. And without meaning to, as Jesus pours into our life, we find that there are pockets of resistance, strongholds that are basically saying, no, no, not true for me, not my experience. And the, under, the understanding of the scriptures is that these things uh, aren't to, to frighten us or to make us think, oh my gosh, I don't want to be at war with Jesus. 
Well, you're not really at war with Jesus because you've already accepted him and he's already won a victory. But we are required to fight this battle to enact and to put into practice the victory of Christ in our lives. God doesn't just want you to know that he loves you a bit. The Apostle Paul said, I pray you'd have power to grasp the full height, the full depth, the breadth, the width, the four dimensions of the love of God. And I haven't fully grasped it yet. I know I haven't, because I see the effects of it in my life. I see the anxiety, I see the worry. I see the lack of trust sometimes in the goodness of God. Now I see a whole lot more of all that stuff than I, than I, I see a lot more trust and love and faith than I used to, um, but there's still more. And I know that there's bits in me that resist it. And we can ask and pray for more and more and more of the love of God to flood into our lives. And it will. But what if there's something in the way? What if there's something that God's wanting me to tear down in order that the love of God can fully come into my life? That's the position that I think the, the scriptures show us we're, we're facing, that we're dealing with. Um, what is a stronghold? Well, there's speculations and reasonings, attitudes and beliefs, thoughts and values that are in opposition to God's truth, truth about ourselves, about life, about how life is to be lived according to God's original purpose. And uh, God's truth and love is absolute. It's the foundation and basis of lasting change. It's the liberating power that breaks the hold of the enemy. God is entirely true and is entirely loving. God is love, and God is truth. And every part of uh, my life that doesn't yet fully embrace God's truth and doesn't fully reflect his love is an area of warfare. It's an area of battle in which I am wanting to put into practice the victory of Christ over them. A stronghold is a wrong way of thinking, thought patterns, um, contrary to the truth about God and his love for us. Through constant repetition, these thoughts become habitual thoughts. And because, as a person thinks, so they are, those thoughts then lead to certain habits of behavior, and those behaviors then counterfeed back into our thoughts. And, um, and those behaviors that we do because of the things we think uh, all become kind of enmeshed, and, and then what happens is that life circumstances so often seem to justify the things that we think and feel so that if someone um, is feeling quite rejected, not really a part of the group, always all their life felt a little bit on the outside, every situation they find themselves in will appear to back up their thinking and their behaviors. So that one might be quite an innocent, oh, I, sorry, I just didn't see you there, becomes a, you rejected me. Because we see everything through that lens. And so life experience then gets added to the thoughts and added to the actions, and you've got the beginnings of a stronghold. Thoughts leading to actions, actions leading back into the things we think, and then life circumstances colluding together, forming a stronghold. I know the truth about God in my head, but somehow it's hard to live the power of it from my heart. Why is that? Strongholds. These strongholds, says Paul, are to be pulled 
down. And God has given us the weapons we need. This isn't about being saved or um, even being... It's nothing to do with that. It's, it's to do with my reaction to the things that happen in life. And because we live fairly independent lives, these strongholds may seem almost normal to me. It's just the way I am. Um, you know, doesn't everybody? Um, did I remember when I first met Jan? Um, I was surprised that Jan's family, when there were really injustices that happened on the news, or you think that's really wrong, that's so evil, um, their family didn't tend to get up and shout at the TV. And I was quite surprised about that, because I assumed everybody did that, because that's what my family did. I just assume that's how you do things. You get very angry with somebody, normally the government, um, and then you calm down about it, and you kind of carry on your way, but you don't actually do anything about it. That's how I learned it. I thought everyone was like that, until I realized that there's another way of doing it. You actually can sort of stay more calm and peaceful, and you can actually then decide to do something about it. Never crossed my mind before. What seems normal to us, actually, is just the way we know how to do life. But actually, um, we don't realize often how those strongholds have come to work in our lives. We don't realize their effects because for us, they're just part of who I am. Well, doesn't everybody act like that? Doesn't everyone feel that from time to time? Well, actually, no, they don't. Well, doesn't everyone feel insecure? No, not everybody does feel that insecure. These strongholds reflect, re restrict our freedom. God has this beautiful plan purpose, his original intention for our lives. And what we find is that as soon as God has declared something to be so, he's decided this is what uh, he wants to happen, we see that the enemy opposes. He opposes the specific plan of God. His specific intention is opposed. So God has a great purpose and plan for Jack's life. Jack will find that the very things that God intends him to be, that's where the enemy will seek to trip him up. It's where the enemy will seek to restrict his freedom. So God has uh, called us to um, certain things. It'll be different for each one of us. His plan is unique. God has called me to be a, a, a spiritual leader of his people, to serve the people he appoints me to, which right now is Christchurch. Um, but I find that at that very point, the enemy tries to undermine that leadership. How does he do it? Easy. He just energizes and stirs up those old strongholds in my heart. I remember one at 16 saying to um, a group of friends, well, I feel a call to, to, be, to, lead, to be, uh, offer myself for ministry, for ordained ministry. But even at the selection conference for it, I remember thinking, I don't belong here. Why am I here? All these other people are far better equipped than I am to be here. I shouldn't be here. This is a mistake. No, I know it's not a mistake now. But under pressure, facing a difficult choice or a difficult decision, I'm amazed how quickly I default back to that. Oh, I should, never be, I should never have taken this on in the first place. I should never have agreed to do this. The very thing that God intends you to do confidently and with boldness and conviction, you find is the very thing that you're having to battle with. I hope some of this is uh, your experience. Otherwise, it's just me, and you better spend the rest of the course praying for me. Um, <laughs> what are strongholds? 
uh, made of. Our battle is fought in three primary areas. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You've probably heard that before. It's kind of taken from Ephesians 2, um, where it seems to describe those three kind of fronts, battle fronts. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So sometimes we think, wow, uh, someone's committed a particular sin, and we think, well, is that a sin of the world, or is it a sin of the body that they've just done it themselves, or is it a sin of the enemy themselves? And people get quite tied up with which one is it, and the answer is it's all of them. They're rather more like a threefold strand, like a threefold cord making one single rope, Um, because... Any, any sin of the flesh, say I decide to lie to somebody about something, um, oh, well, that's a sin of the flesh. Um, that's, not a, that's not a sin of the, the devil. We're not fighting against the devil there. We're fighting against the human sort of flesh, the body, the, the person themselves that's chosen to lie. But the scriptures show us that every time we do something contrary to God's plan and purpose, we expose ourselves to the influence of the evil one. I yield in some small part to the influence of the evil one. So it's really very, it's impossible to say, well, that's a sin of this or that's a sin of that. Sin is sin. And as soon as I commit a sin, I inevitably open myself up in some degree to the influence of the author of sin, who is the enemy of our souls. And so we see it as a, this threefold strand. And you'd be, it's surprising how often the scriptures speak directly of individual sins or things being, being all wrapped up with the very plan of Satan himself. I've put a few illustrations there. In your anger, do not sin. And do not give the devil a foothold. Because persistent anger gives the enemy a foothold. That doesn't mean that anyone who's angry has instantly become demonized from a, with a demon of hell, but it means that I'm, I'm giving some ground within my heart. I'm giving some grounds to the enemy. And if I keep doing it, it gets harder and harder to take it back. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear isn't just an emotion. It's not just some thoughts in our minds. It's a spiritual quality. Fear is a stronghold. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, this wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. We, we can't separate sins out as being some are, are not so bad and some are uh, of the flesh and some are of the world and some are more directly of the devil. The, the, the enemy takes every opportunity and wherever there is sin or rebellion against God's perfect plan, purpose for our lives, then the enemy is in some way being given influence. Um, there are loads of uh, repeated patterns throughout the scripture. Um, and we might find this a little bit difficult. Well, I don't want to believe that I'm, I'm, my life is resisting God in some way. I don't like the idea that the, the enemy is energizing um, some areas of my life. 
Um, well, I, I don't like it either. But this is the arena of our warfare. It's not a battle for salvation. Jesus has secured that. It's a battle for godliness. It's a battle for freedom. So that I can walk into my promised land and tear down the strongholds that will stop me freely from entering it. And that's, that's, if you like, the normal Christian life. And one of the great ploys of the enemy, I think, is to prevent Christians from grasping this, from, from making us almost think that while the, the spiritual battle is all those things that are going on bad in the world out there, that's the battle, it's out there. The battle, my friends, is in here. We cannot stop most of what is going to happen out there, but we can deal with our reaction to it. And most of the scheme of the enemy is to provoke in us, through these strongholds, a sin reaction. When I'm feeling rejected, guess how I tend to react? In love and joy and peace? Nope. I start to react in fear. I start to react in self-pity. I start to react in a whole host of ways, but none of them are godly. When, I, uh, I'm, uh, when I'm feeling proud and un, un, unhelpfully uh, full of myself in something that I've done, do you think that makes me act in a godly, peaceful, and holy way? No, it doesn't. It makes me act in an arrogant fashion. When we um, experience, when we find ourselves up against these strongholds, they provoke in us behaviors and reactions that um, are, not, are not godly, they're not good. And that's the reason behind some of those. When, when someone says something, well, that was a bit unkind. Oh, that was a bit, that was really unkind they said that. Yeah, but it's, it's, what you've actually just heard is that you've heard a manifestation of a stronghold. Somewhere in that person's heart, there's a stronghold. It might be a stronghold of deep rejection or fear. It might be a sense of insignificance. It might be pride. It might be something else. But what you're hearing is a reaction to something that they feel and hold very deeply. And every one of us is wrestling with different things in different ways. And the process of freedom is learning to identify the strongholds and learning how to use the weapons of our warfare to tear them down. And this shouldn't really surprise us because it's pretty much on every page of the New Testament in one form or another. We need to understand that God's, God's truth is... is absolute. Satan always undermines God's truth. Satan is the father of lies. In Genesis 3, he says, did God say that you shouldn't eat the fruit of any of the tree? And of course, God didn't say that, did he? He said, you mustn't eat the fruit of that tree, but you can eat the fruit of all the others. You see the, 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 the arch scheme of the enemy right at the very beginning of the scripture. Did God say? He challenges what God said. And then when they say we mustn't eat of this tree, he says, no, 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 you won't die. God just said that because he doesn't want you to eat of it. He doesn't want you to be like him with the knowledge of both good and evil. Um, and of course, God knew that he hadn't built us with the capacity to navigate good and evil. That's why he told us not to eat from it. But um, uh, we do, and um, we cave in to the lies of the enemy. But um, Satan's real power now is, is, is being disarmed by Jesus upon the cross. He's disarmed the powers and the authorities. 
And yet the Apostle Paul says, take up the shield of faith with which you may defend yourself against the fiery darts of the evil one. Well, what are these fiery darts coming against us? What, if Satan has been disarmed, how come there are fiery darts coming my way? What are they? Well, they're really no weapon at all. They're not really very powerful. They have really no power at all because there are nothing. They're lies. They're just lies. Lies has no power at all. There's no truth in it at all. There's no substance in it. It's just a lie. It won't come about. It's an empty um, threat. It's a non-event unless you believe it. And when you believe it, you empower it. That's how the enemy works in our lives, in the lives of everyone. He's the father of lies. He takes and distorts God's truth, preventing us from fully grasping it and living in the good of it. He takes and distorts the truth about God's love and causes us in some parts to doubt it and to question it. Believing God's truth and putting it into practice is a lifetime's effort. But we read over and over again, don't we, about the beauty of God's truth. I delight in your statutes, as the psalmist. The law of the Lord is perfect, delighting the souls, more to be desired than anything else you could ever want. The law of God, the truth, the pure truth of who God is and what he says about himself is, is absolute. And when God says, I love you, it's absolute, period. There's no question, there's no corollary, there's no addendum. He says, I love you. And yet I know that I filter the love of my Father through the filters of love I've had in this life. I filter it through the girlfriends who said, I don't love you anymore, don't want to go out with you anymore. I filter it through the however good but nonetheless imperfect love of a parent. I filter it through my experiences of love lost. And while I know that God loves me, I find... I'm unable fully to grasp it because my experiences are also speaking a voice to me. As fast as God is speaking to me, there are other things speaking, and they're not always in agreement with God's truth. We need the power of God's love. Paul wrote this in Ephesians 3, For this reason I kneel before the Father. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And we read that as this lovely sort of pastoral prayer. And I love it. We all love it. I pray that you may have power to grasp it. But, but look at it, look at what it's saying. Why does Paul fall on his knees for the church in Ephesus? I mean, there's wars in Paul's day going on around the world. I mean, you might think, surely there are more important things that we might want to pray for. I mean, by all means, let's pray that you can know his love, but let's actually deal with some of the big injustices in the world first, huh? But Paul says, no, this is more important than anything, because the foundation of all Christian ministry, has to start with the knowledge of God's love for you. And if it doesn't, it's all a waste of time. It has to be. Because only the love of God can ultimately put right what's wrong in our world. And if God's people, who are called by his name, aren't rooted and established in that love, 
when we're just not going to be as effective as God intends us to be. So Paul says, this, this is so important. Before we do anything else, let's pray this. And then he says, I pray that you will have power. Why will you need power? Why do you need power to grasp the love of God? Because there are strongholds resisting the love of God. And it's going to take power. And when we understand that there are strongholds in our lives, in everyone's life, that we're wrestling with, it helps us to pray more effectively. When Jan and I first learned about some of this transforming life teaching, one of the things it did for us was it changed the way we prayed. I I used to pray, Lord, I really pray that you would pour your love upon um, London. We lived in London. Lord, would you just pour your love upon London? And we would pray, and we would earnestly pray, sometimes with tears, Lord, would you just pour your love onto London? As if somehow I was more wanting the love of God on London than God was himself. As if somehow I imagined God to be sitting in heaven saying, "Mm, pray harder than I might. Pray harder, pray longer, pray more than I might just do it. We prayed, not meaning to, but I prayed with that kind of slight suspicion in my heart that perhaps God isn't really going to bless London. God would love to bless London. You don't need to to pray that that God will do something he's already totally and completely committed to doing. So why doesn't London get the love of God? Why isn't London alive with the love of God's strongholds? That's why. Forces, powerful forces, not just in individuals now, but in whole cultures. This stronghold works across whole cities, it works across whole churches, it works across whole nations. There are corporate strongholds, corporate things that whole groups find themselves subject to. And we found that as we began to grasp some of this stuff, it helped us to pray. What is coming against the love of God in London? What is coming against an experience, an encounter of the love of God? God is not unwilling to pour his love upon us. In fact, God is pouring his love upon me right now. But my capacity to experience it, my ability to grasp it, that's going to take power. Because there's forces that are resisting it. They don't want to, they don't even know what they're doing, but they are. We need power to grasp the love of God. Um, Because love is foundational to who we are, if we don't get it, and none of us have had it perfectly, because none of us have been loved perfectly in this life, it will cause us to seek love elsewhere, often from dangerous and inadequate sources but our desperate need binds us to them. That's why some people stay in abusive relationships and you look on and think, well, I don't know why they don't just walk out. Why do they subject themselves to that again and again? Because we need the love. And sometimes there are sources of love that we find and that that it drives us, because we so need love, we can't live without it. It drives us to a whole host of other things. Others uh, learn to live without it and yield to a deep sense of shame or insignificance. Others become hardened to the world, unable to give and receive love as God intended. We may compensate a, a love deprivation in our lives by becoming angry and aggressive or uncaring of others. 
people who are very aggressive towards other people, often it's a huge love deficit in their own heart. It's a gaping hole. And yes, we have to curb the behaviours and the destructive behaviours of people who are acting out of their anger and their aggression. But we're right to see that the root cause is that there is, there is a huge gaping hole. And that stronghold of anger is preventing somebody from fully experiencing the love of God. I'm using love as an illustration a lot, but there's other things we could do. I'm just focusing on that because it is so foundational um, to our lives as Christians. What we know of the Father's love, it's unconditional. It's never based on performance. If you want to see an exposition of the Father's love, read the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 and read Tim Keller's book called The Prodigal God. It is an exposition of the love of God. God's love is never conditional. It's not based on performance. It's a genuine delighting, not a tolerating. He genuinely delights in you. It's freeing, not controlling. He gives the prodigal son the full inheritance and uh, doesn't withhold. And he doesn't control. And he delights when he comes home. The love of the father is totally patient, we have that beautiful picture of the prodigal father just waiting, looking out for the son, so that when he sees him afar off, he's running out to meet him. He's totally forgiving. He puts a ring on his finger and he puts the robe that is a robe of the favor. Remember, um, I was speaking on this in another church on Saturday. Whenever you see robe, you've got to go right back to the beginning of uh, Genesis uh, 37. Jacob gives Joseph a fine robe. It indicates the favor of the father. And Jesus wants his Jewish audience to hear that. What happens to the one that returns to God the Father? He takes Joseph's coat, the multicolored coat, and he puts it on you. It's a sign of forgiveness. It's a sign of delight and favor. It's a decisive, you're my favorite. This is what the love of God is, is like. God's love is always towards us. It never changes. God's love is poured into my heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. My heart's capacity to receive that love and to benefit from, from it, however depends on certain heart attitudes, which scripture says we're to cultivate. So it isn't that God doesn't love you, it's that, that your experience of it, the benefit of it to you, may be less than it could be, because strongholds restrict it and, and push it away. I never understood the physics of it particularly, um, but I know when I used to, when I was a kid, I used to play outside and my grandmother would look after us. And when we would come inside for a drink, half of the morning, she'd say, take your coat off, otherwise you won't feel the benefit when you go back out again. And I could never understand what on earth she was talking about. Um, you won't feel the benefit of what and how, would the how do you benefit from anything? Um, but actually, it's a, it's a good word in this context because the warmth of the house was the warmth of the house, and however cold it was outside was however cold it was outside. The coat really made no difference to the actual way it was, but it made a huge difference to the way I felt. God loves us, but strongholds will prevent me from fully encountering it, from fully experiencing it. It's not that God is loving me less. It's not that he's refusing 
to pour out love and blessing on my life and my capacity to receive it and enjoy it is dependent upon these heart attitudes, humility. God resists the proud, it says. You might wish that he didn't, but he does. He resists the proud. He says, I'm not empowering that. I, I can't. Pride doesn't have the capacity to know the love of God. Humility does. Humility is like a sponge. It drinks in the love of God. Faith drinks in the love of God. Doubt doesn't have any capacity to hold love. But faith does. Forgiveness and living a life of forgiveness towards other people. It's why Jesus put it as one of the main strands in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those. Week six, it's all about forgiveness. One of the biggest issues of our lives that we have to nail as Christians. Because bitterness and revenge, they don't hold. They don't hold the love of God at all. And so long as they're there in my heart, to whatever measure, it resists the love of God. And so we're told to cultivate um, uh, these attitudes, and there are attitudes that we have to resist, pride, anger, unbelief, unforgiveness, jealousy. These are strongholds that we need to tear down wherever we find them in our lives so that everything Jesus died to win becomes mine, and I can walk in it and enjoy it and get the benefit of it. That's the principle. How do strongholds become established? Just to revisit that a bit. Well, um, through sin. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin, the Apostle Paul says. But loads of Christians are enslaved to different sins. That doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means that we've still got some work to do. Sin is not just a bunch of stuff you do wrong. Sin is a power. It's a power. It's a force. Um, and uh, it results in behaviours that are wrong, but it begins as a force. It's a spiritual power. Um, ungodly involvement, um, involving ourselves in, in idolatry, or things that we know are, are beginning to take a hold in our lives because sin is highly addictive. Uh, wounds that we've experienced um, through no fault of our own, um, unmet love needs where people have let us down, but they've sown the seeds of distrust in our hearts. Some have experienced deliberate harm and abuse. There's been an omission of care, and these things can wound us. And when we feel wounded in our hearts, we tend to build walls around ourselves to prevent us from being hurt. But the same walls keep the love of God out. Because we build ourselves walls of self-sufficiency. We build ourselves walls of, I'm not going to trust anyone ever again because I'm never going to let myself get hurt again. And we build those walls, but those walls are they're against the principles of God. Self-sufficiency, not letting anyone near in case they hurt me. Being fearful of others because of what they might do to me. These, these aren't compatible with the love of God, and, and yet they're there in our lives very often. And we have to learn to pull these strongholds down so that they're no longer affecting us, that we're no longer victims of the past, but allowing God's love to restore us. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture right in the heart of the Scriptures in the Song of Songs 
Um, there's a beautiful picture of the lover and the beloved, and um, the beloved, which is basically you and I, uh, the bride, um, is being pursued by the bridegroom. And the bridegroom comes, and he stands behind the wall of his lover, you and me. He stands behind the walls, peering through the lattice of the window. And what does the lover of your soul say? He says, come out from behind the walls. See, the spring has come. The winter is gone. It's winter behind the walls, but come out from behind the walls. And it's springtime. Come away with me, he says. Come away into the springtime. Don't stay in the winter of hurt and independence and self-protection. These are natural things, I understand that, but these are things that God is longing to dismantle in my life so that I can live free. That's the principle. Sometimes there are generational things come into our lives. People just find they repeat the same kind of patterns. Uh, my parent, my, my mother was fearful, so I'm fearful. In a moment, we're going to hear from a couple of people just about some illustrations of uh, strongholds. But we just find that these things are very uh, generational. I'm not going to spend too much time going uh, down this line, but some of you will know more about this than I do. But there are certain generational patterns of sin that seem to just be generational, the sins of the fathers. That doesn't mean we blame our parents for everything that we do wrong. Um, it just recognizes that there may not be any other explanation as to why I have a propensity for this or for that other than it's, it's just been part of my family's uh, inheritance for years and years. There is a godly inheritance, but there is also a negative inheritance. And the good news is that Jesus says, you can be the one that pulls down the strongholds. My family had not a single Christian that I could find in my family um, going back over many generations. We were not a church-going family. Um, and I don't think Jan's family particularly had got any sort of great inheritance of faith. So when we had our first son, we called him Peter, the rock, because we said, here's where it stops. From now on, our family serves the Lord. I've come from, from 200 years, a family who never been a Christian in our family, but there is now. And from now on, that's what we wanted our family to be. We named our son for that reason. Because we want, to, we want an inheritance now of, of faith. And I want to see that passed down, my family. Soul ties um, through ungodly or damaging or dysfunctional relationships. The Bible uh, tells us that um, where, uh, when a man and a woman have sex together, there's a, um, that's, uh, that's a, a strong bond, a sexual bond. Uh, the act of sex isn't just a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. We know that because at its root, it's an illustration of the love of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom for his bride. Paul says that. He says, for this reason, the husband and wife shall get married, because actually at its very heart, God is the lover of your soul, who pursues you like a bridegroom. It, that's how it is. And so marriage is simply an illustration of that. There's a strong bond formed. In the scriptures say that when, uh, if we allow ourselves to become embroiled in those relationships, it forms a soul tie. That means an unhealthy dependence on another that the other can never deliver. 
because there's not in the issue of, of, um, of relationships and sex, there isn't the accompanying um, commitment expressed through proper vows and a commitment to, uh, to faithful uh, monogamous relationship. Which is why the scriptures say um, that the beauty of sex is, is for within marriage. And that's, that's why I, I, I absolutely uphold that, because... I've seen some of the difficulties for people who have um, had multiple partners, and I've seen how it's caused them to become so dependent on people. And the good news is that um, that may be people's experience, but you can break the, the power of that. Christ gives us the weapons to do it. And it's done easily, so long as there's genuine humility and faith. But that's why the scriptures say it's, we have to be careful about... And there are other kinds of relationships equally as damaging. The codependent relationship. Some of you will be more able to give a description of that than I can. But it's possible for relationships to become quite dysfunctional. Well, not possible. It happens all the time, doesn't it? But where we give too much trust to someone else and allow our lives to be lived vicariously through someone else. That's just wrong because it's not living within myself and the capacity that God has given me. There's an appropriate... Uh, relationship. There are all kinds of appropriate relationships that God gives the, 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 the guidelines for. Friendships, uh, husband and wife, um, pastor and congregant. <laughs> uh, my job is to love you to death. Uh, your job is to obey me in everything. <laughs> I'm just kind of kidding, but not really. Uh, but you, you, get the, you get the picture. It's, there is, there's all kinds of, and God puts boundaries to help us to navigate these relationships to get the best out of them. And it must break God's heart when he hears other people saying, well, I think we don't need to worry about that. We can do it our way. Because God just sees the carnage that so often results from that. Um, unforgiveness is a soul tie. When you, when you hold unforgiveness towards another person, you're creating a soul tie. You don't mean to, but the very act of holding on to a grudge or a bitterness ties you to the offence. And if you persist in it, and it, 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 it gathers more and more momentum, it becomes a strong hold. And many Christians wrestle with that. I've wrestled with that in my life. Later on, we'll share with you. I'm just getting through some of the stuff so we can get it recorded, and then we get more chance in the weeks to come to, to give you illustrations and to see how it works out. Um, recognizing strongholds will... Very often, it starts by just seeing patterns of behavior. You just see, why do I always do that? I've noticed I do that all the time. Why do I do that? Why do I always get defensive when someone asks me about that? My behaviours give away that something's not at peace and love and harmony. Something's, there's some kind of a stronghold. Um, so patterns of behaviour, fears that we live over and over again. Um, I mean, why do I always feel like that? Why does that happen to me all the time? Um, we see patterns of behaviour. We accept responsibility for our own thoughts, actions and reactions. While we may be the victims of abuse, deprivation and slander, God's path for our freedom doesn't come by blaming, condemning or punishing the others. I mean, we might wish it did, but it doesn't. It's not that God doesn't want justice and it's not that he doesn't, isn't going to work justice, but the path to your freedom doesn't come by pursuing justice for yourself. There's no freedom in that. It, 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 just becomes, it just becomes an obsession. 
that takes us away from God's purpose for our lives. It doesn't mean it's wrong to work for justice or uh, in different issues. It doesn't. But it, it, it means that our freedom depends more on my heart attitude um, of forgiveness. So we own them for ourselves. We don't try to blame anything on anyone else. You made me do this is not something that Christians should really be saying. I don't give you that power to make me do something. If you made me do it, it's my stronghold that's making me do it, and I need to be responsible for that. We learn to call strongholds for what they really are. We're tempted to minimize thoughts and actions that we know are contrary to what God intends for us. We're tempted to say, I'm a little anxious about such and such, when actually what we're saying is, is I'm afraid. I'm fearful. Yeah, I get a little bit touchy sometimes when people mention that. No, you know, I'm not just touchy about it, I'm angry about it. it we, we try to name it and own these things so that we're not minimizing them. Now, some of us, of course, we tend to catastrophize everything, even maybe our own sin, and we make it out to be even worse than it might be. But I think, by and large, we tend to minimize. Paul says, be of sober judgment about yourself. Don't, don't pretend you're the worst sinner in Christendom, unless you are. Uh, but at the same time, don't, don't, don't minimize these uh, strongholds. Um, and remember, it's never to condemn. God shows us these, and we teach on this over this, these next few weeks, because God wants to liberate us. This is so important. Our focus is always on what God wants us to become, his original intention for us. God doesn't intend any of us to live in fear. He doesn't intend any of us to live in doubt about his love for us. He doesn't intend any of us to live um, with insignificance or insecurity. He doesn't intend any of us to accomplish his plan and purpose by being proud or arrogant. God wants me to be free to pursue the life he set out before me. And as I set out for it, I discover that there are things in the way. As I discover them, I learn how to tear them down so that they're no longer in the way so that God's purpose and plan for me can be fulfilled. Um, God has prepared for us a promised land, a life of freedom in which we can become all he intended us to be, to take my place in the history of his great redemption story. Our task is now to inhabit that place, to put it into action. The promised land is before us, now you have to walk into it, pulling down every Jericho that stands in the way. We're all dealing with strongholds of one kind or another. Part of God's purpose for the church is that we help each other learn how to fight. Psalm 18.34, it is God who trains my hands for battle. To encourage each other to keep going, to stand alongside one another. Well, you seem to survive that reasonably well. Um, some illustrations of strongholds. I'm just going to ask Jan's going to just come and just share a little testimony of when we began to... Um, take this stuff seriously. I'd known all this stuff for a long time because I read the books. But um, it, last week I described what led us to have to really start taking these things seriously. And as usual, it's a crisis. Uh, but it was a deep, deep crisis for me, uh, which led us to this stuff that we're doing. Um, and John's going to just share a little example. Some of you may have heard me talk a little bit about this before, um, so I apologize if, if it seems like a repetition, but um, one of the things that God began to show me when we started looking at this was that I was really quite a fearful person. Um, I 
I suppose if I think about it, I, I can trace it right back to when I was really little. And I was, I was always very anxious about things and afraid. I was scared of heights. Um, I was just a really quite um, timid child. And um, in fact, my mum reminded me as well recently that I was asked to do the lesson at the uh, nine lessons and carols in our church when I was in the choir, about nine years old. And she said I was shaking like a leaf. I was shaking so much. I was so terrified of standing up and just reading out the lesson. I mean, it seems ridiculous now, but that's what I was like. Um, I was, I'm, I'm one of these people who can always see um, potential danger in everything, you know. Um, I can see also if, if somebody's not very well in my family, I escalate that into a really serious, life-threatening condition. Does anyone else do this? It's just me. Yeah, good. There's a few of you around, so you know what I'm talking about. It's not just a normal sort of sensible precaution because life does have dangers. We want to be careful when we cross the road. So it's good to be afraid of cars, isn't it? But this is the kind of fear that just overtakes you and it paralyzes you. And I'd known about this for a long time and I knew that it was contrary to the Bible. I knew that it said in the Bible, do not be afraid. And I can't remember how many times, ridiculous number of times it says that. But I was being disobedient because I was being anxious and afraid. And I tried really hard for a lot of years to try and um, deal with it. But actually, I never made any progress at all. I just got better at pretending that I was smiling and it's all fine but actually I was on the inside I really was anxious and um, when I started to see this as a stronghold and a power rather than just a behavior that I needed to try harder to deal with it made a phenomenal difference because I started praying in a completely different way I started praying repentance prayers instead of, Lord, help me feel your peace. I mean, I must have asked for peace all the time when I was feeling anxious. Uh, you know, going too fast in the car, going... I mean, Tim said that, you know, you learn something different when you uh, meet someone from a very different upbringing. Well, Tim's family were really adventurous people. They never thought about the potential dangers. In fact, your dad was almost quite reckless, really, wasn't he? In the silly things he did, even with our children when they were little. Ah, I'm glad I wasn't there to see. Um, but uh, my family, on the, on the other side of the spectrum, we were also very, very careful. We did everything very sensibly. And, um, you know, and I realized that my parents are fearful I hadn't realized it until I met Tim, but my family were really, really careful people. We never did anything really exciting or really dangerous. We always just went for a walk or we went on holiday in the UK, and we never did anything exciting because my parents were really fearful people. So I think it probably was generational for me originally, but then things happened in my life which compounded it and made me very anxious. I was anxious about health. I was anxious about accidents, and I was anxious certainly about I wouldn't have liked to stand up in front of people like I'm doing now when I was younger. 
But anyway, that's the story of where I was. When I learnt to repent and not feel condemned, but just feel forgiven, it made a massive difference. I can't tell you how much difference it made. I'm a lot more peaceful now anyway because of that, so I don't have these ah, moments quite so much. But more to the point, I know what to do when I feel that happening. I know what to do. I know where to go. So one very, very silly little example for you is a number of years ago, we were on holiday, and we went on a barge with our two sons who were teenagers at the time. And our youngest son is probably takes more after his dad's side of the family, and he's very adventurous, and he doesn't think anything of leaping off here, there, and everywhere, which was an absolute pain for me as a mum, because I was constantly... Uh... But anyway, he was about 16 at the time, and the whole, the whole time we got on this barge, we start going down the canals, and it all starts off well, but he keeps leaping off all the time, and he keeps winding the locks and forgetting to take the winder off. And just, I, I started getting really anxious. And I, um, I kept saying, stop doing that, Ben. Don't do that, Ben. Don't do the other, Ben. And after a day or two, he said, Mom, you're ruining the holiday. And when he said that, it brought me to my senses again. And I thought, you know what? I am. I really am, and I really don't want to. But I'd learnt by then that one way to deal with this is to repent. So I actually went to the front of the boat on my own, whereas the others were all busy steering the boat somewhere. And I just sort of went and I said to the Lord, I'm really sorry, I'm ruining this holiday. I'm letting fear grip me again. And I asked the Lord to forgive me. I received his forgiveness. And I took authority over that fear. Like Tim was saying, we have authority over it. And the fear went, and I replaced it with trust and thanked God that I was going to have a great holiday and that he's going to keep us all from falling in the canal or from getting stuck between the canal and the, you know, the side and the boat. All my fears, anyway, were not going to come. And I thanked God for that. And suddenly my peace came back, and I was able to enjoy the rest of my holiday. Now, that's a really silly example, but it's, a, it's an example of how... I could deal with the stronghold of fear that has ruined a lot of things in the past. Thanks, Jan. And um, I mean, we will come on more about, about repentance. It sounds like a, they, people may not quite know. This is more than just um, repentance. We'll talk about it in week three or four, I think. Um, it's one of the weapons of our warfare. Um, and it's been a process. But the amazing thing for me is that I've, in the last few years, I've had now the, um, the partner in ministry that God intended Jan to be. She was always brilliantly supportive. But I always knew, um, I remember one time, it was during this big thing, going on with this thing, Toronto. Some of you are probably involved in that. We were really getting into it as well. Great fun. And, um, and I remember praying for somebody. Do you remember? On the floor. And um, they were on the floor. We were just kneeling down with them, and they were sort of doing something. And, um, and you had a word, and you told me what it was, and it was so fantastic. It was exactly... I, I knew that if she spoke it out over this person, it would just break something in their own life, which was just... And I said to them, why don't you just share that? She couldn't. 
She was so fearful of getting it wrong, fearful of it being the wrong time, fearful that she wouldn't be able to get it right, fearful that she... You, you, you remember that? You just couldn't do it, could you? And I remember sort of thinking, the enemy is robbing the body of Christ of what Jan can be, because this is an incredible woman of God, and yet fear was robbing her and robbing the body of Christ of it. And in the last few years, since Jan's just done this incredible work of dealing with your fear, in, your, in Jan's instance, fear, I'll tell you my stuff another time, um, it's, it's given me back the partner that God intended. I know that if Jan has a word for you, she'll share it, because she's learned to overcome that. And, and so these things, they stop us from being free. They stop us from living in the freedom that God wants for us, and they restrict his plan and purpose. God has raised up in, in, in Jan somebody who actually is prophetic. Um, but you'd never have known that for the first few years because fear stole the good of it away. And now it's here. And I see the idea of Jan actually taking any lead in the church. In the first 15 years of our lives, Jan took no role in the church at all. And you'd have said, oh, she's not interested in the church, really. Oh, she doesn't really feel she wants, she doesn't really see herself as, she doesn't want to be a pastor's wife. Maybe she doesn't want to be a pastor's wife. No, 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 it was fear. It's a stronghold. Um, and that's why we must break out of these things, because they stop us from being the people God wants. That's brilliant, John. Thanks so much for sharing for your heart. Thank you. Um, yes, yes. Absolutely. Tracy. Trace, come on. I'm just going to invite Tracy, because this just came up last week, and so this is great because it's just very recent. Um, well, yes, if I start from last week. Last week, I was a mess here. I cried throughout the whole evening. So did a lot of people. So did a lot of people. But yeah, but I did cry a lot, didn't I? Um, that day, I had wrestled. Well, no, not that day. Actually, the day was really good. I had a really intense job interview. Um, all day was with loads of interviews. One of those really full-on ones. I felt really God was with me. Um, I felt peaceful. I felt calm. I felt in my weakness, God's strength. I enjoyed the whole day. It was amazing. Now, bearing in mind, I'm not generally like that because I'm really, really anxious generally and always fear that if I do anything which requires that kind of strength, um, the voices in my head always go, did God really tell you to go for that job? Is that something that, it's not for you, is it? Because you're not actually that good. I spend my life striving, you know, Tell me to do something and I'll do it really well because I think, well, I have to because I'm not actually very good at anything, really. That's what the voices say inside me. So at this moment, I've had this job interview. It's gone really, really well. I'm the underdog, but it went really well. Everybody loved me, thought it went great. Came home, knew I was going to get the phone call, whether I got that job or not, just before last week. Um, on that note, I did also know that God had led me to this point. The voices in my head were going, 
you don't really, you can't possibly go for that job. But I knew God had laid it on my heart way before the job even was advertised that I'd had to go for it. The door was there. He said, try the door. I tried the door and I was obedient. It goes against everything of who I am, particularly when I've spent 17 years out of work raising a family. And that just, in, that just fed my insecurity and my sense of insignificance that I knew was something that was within me. Um, anyway, got the phone call just before I came here. Just to let you know, to put it out of your misery, you didn't get the job. Gutted. Absolutely gutted. So I come in here. I'm already in tears. So I said, somebody said to me, are you okay? You can imagine. So I was beside myself. I looked like a pickled onion. That's all I could think about was just because my eyes were so sore because I'd been crying. I sat there. just thought, oh, so bad. I mean, I had so many people praying for me. Peace. Yeah, I had it all. I had it all. And those little voices started to come back again going, see, I told you. That's why you don't try those kind of things, because you're not that good. It's not for you, because there's people out there much better than you. So um, I'm crying even more. Tim's talking. I'm still crying. I just can't stop crying. So afterwards, you know, there's some lovely, lovely people who come to me and said, Casey, you were, you know... You did what you needed to do. God, you did what God said. Yeah, I know, I know, I did, I did. But it was just, I just. And um, people prayed. And I could feel inside, though, this kind of just ang angry, but the wrong kind of anger. It was starting to, to well up within, within me. But I was like, people being really nice to me and saying nice things to me, and I'm like getting really a bit angry like that. I could feel it welling. Mm. So um, everyone goes. We all leave, and I'm still in tears. And uh, there's an, everyone's gone, and there's just Tim and Jan, I think, left by this point. And I said, I just explained to Tim, I'm, I just, yeah, just, yeah, I didn't get it. Sorry, I just didn't get it. And I thought Tim might say, oh, it's really awful, isn't it? It's really bad, I know. But he didn't. <laughs> Not on the contrary. He just said to me, and I remember going inside, as soon as you said, Tim said, you've got to remember, though, Tracy, you don't want anything to take root that's not of God at this point. You don't want to go to bed and the next day wake up feeling bitter and angry. And I thought, ouch. And then I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly why I'm here. God's not condemning me. He's liberating me. I know that. I've prayed so much. God, just get those at strongholds, just all those things that hold me back from what God wants me to do. He's doing it right here, right now. And Tim reminded me, the sycamore seed falls off the tree and it takes root. And all those roots down below start to get deeper and deeper. And that captured, that spoke to me of what 
can happen if I start to feel sorry for myself with the self-pity, go on about, well, yeah, I'm not very good, am I? And this is going to happen again and again, so why should I bother? And I went home and I prayed, thanking God for actually doing this, thanking for being reminded. And I had this tremendous peace. And nothing next day carried through from how I was feeling, that bitterness or anger that started to grow and that sense of adding to my insignificance and rejection, which was feeding that, I was, that the incidences and my anger was feeding those mm. things again. I just felt peace, I felt strength, I felt joy. I had to go and face these people because I work in this environment, so the people that actually didn't want me I have to work with continued. And yet, I didn't feel anything. I just felt, felt empowered that God was with me and that I can do this. And that all I did, I was obedient to him. And in the process of being obedient, he showed me other stuff. And I was really thankful for somebody to give me that truth that may have hurt at the time, but actually reminded me, no, do this. And I'm thankful for that. Because I've had a great week. And, uh... Tracy, you, you shared also that, that you know, insignificance and feeling is something that you've wrestled with. Actually, it, it, it goes right back. You see it oh, yeah. as a core to your whole life. I see significance as a core to my whole life. My, well, the day I was born was a dangerous life for me. I grew up in an abusive, difficult, life-threatening situations. I always told people, always used me and told me that I wasn't good and I was just used. My insignificance is it's not my insignificance. That's what I would just say. Well, it's my insignificance because I am. That's me. But it's not true. No, it's not. But that has dictated a lot of things in my life. And it's that revelation when you realize, no, I'm not having that anymore. Hmm. And then God starts doing something. But you're not insignificant because God says you're not insignificant. God placed a huge value on your life and it's, it's God that speaks significance over us and that word he speaks over us starts to go to war with the insignificance in us and that's the battle that we're involved in. It's a battle for the truth. The truth is you are significant. The lie is I'm not significant. Um, but it's powerful because we believe it. And we're about receiving the truth, exercising the truth, and learning how to let it grow in our lives so that the truth becomes more important than the lie. So that the truth becomes the place I live out of rather than that lying place of insignificance. And that's just a fantastic example of learning to put that into practice. The real battle last week wasn't about getting the job or not getting the job. The real battle was what God was trying to do in here. And you won. Um, you know, and I mean, and they lost a great teacher. But I think out of that, God was doing something. That the bigger battle is never actually the stuff that happens to us. It's how I respond to it. And God wants to liberate me. Freedom is being able to respond to whatever comes my way with love and joy and peace, knowing that I'm loved and significant and whole. Um, and thanks for being willing to share that. It's brilliant. Thanks, Tracy.
Okay, we're, just, we're not going to do anything else other than just have some time in groups. Um, and there's some, some questions just to help us to begin to kind of get into this. I haven't mentioned, um, you've got some other sheets in your notes. There's a picture of a tree in there somewhere. Uh, that just, I think, I think it makes pretty good sense if you look at it. The stuff that's going on in our lives, that's those strongholds of uh, resentment and um, that it, it naturally produces above the ground behaviors. It produces actions and activities, but it's, it's the fruit of deep roots that are going on in our lives. And the battle is about uprooting those and learning to live out of the new heart that God has given us, um, which I think you'll find is on the left-hand side of the trees. So it's just a, a little illustration to help show how the actions and activities we see on the outside often betoken deep strongholds on the inside. And we need to deal with the roots of these things, not just try and change our behaviors on the outside, um, which is so often what Christians do and pass it off for holiness. True change is heart change, uh, root change, where the very motivation of my life is changed. But on our tables, we just got a chance now, uh, 20 minutes or so, and then we're not going to do anything else, so just the time on the groups, and then we'll close with a prayer. So um, do use the questions to explore what we've been sharing tonight. <laughs>